Today we're going to look at a relatively unknown person in Mary, but I, I would ask you to think about it from this concept. Today we're exposed to the impossible, or what, what seems to us as human beings as the impossible. And I want you to look at that with me. If you haven't opened your Bibles yet or picked up your electronic devices, I'm trying to use a little bit of both of these these days. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. You know, as I was preparing this week, I was thinking of this, like, brilliant top 10 list I was going to give you of the impossible things in life today. And I came to understand all these lists have been trademarked now. And as I worked through the list, half of them I couldn't even pronounce the words that are used because they're so science-oriented. But I did remember one thing. So if you are 30 years old or younger in this room, you don't realize that the Internet didn't exist, that the World Wide Web really didn't exist. And that's a great example of how in our lives things changed. You know, when I was a kid, my my father was a pretty old guy. He was a World War II vet. And he used to look at me and describe in awe the idea of a color television, that that was something that just couldn't happen. If you were here last week, you know I mentioned that we used to sit on Sunday night in the little 600-square-foot apartment that we lived in, and there'd be a black-and-white TV against the wall, and we'd all turn on uh, Disney's wonderful world of color, yeah, with our black-and-white television. So my dad was always amazed at color. Well, this is what we're going to look into this morning. Mary's confronted with what I would describe as, in her mind, the impossible. And I'd ask you, as you take a look at this passage with me, to consider these things. Does life sometimes feel impossible for you? Is it too busy sometimes you just can't handle the busyness of it? Do your circumstances sometimes come upon you where you think I'm not going to get to the next day? It's just too much. Well, to agree in this to a degree in this story of Mary meeting the angel Gabriel is a story of a young lady, most likely a teenage young lady. You might think it's very different than the shepherds, but here's what I would suggest that is very much like us. We're going to take a look at her life beyond just the miracle of the virgin birth this morning, and I'd like you to consider this. She's a teenage girl. She has dreams. She has fears. Her story isn't written yet. God hasn't finished with her. She's at the beginning of what would be her story. And I'm going to suggest to you that if we can look at her that way as we look through these verses we might see what it really looks like to trust God. And that's the one thing that I would like to leave you with this morning, an encouragement about what trusting God looks like. So if if you're not there, get to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Now, much like last weekend when we took a look at the, the shepherd's story, I'd like to unfold this story the way it's written as well. Uh, It's like a drama that's unfolded scene by scene, and there's six pieces to this drama that we'll look at individually. You know, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and makes a proclamation. Mary has a reaction to that. 
The angel then gets into great detail about what this means, which results in Mary having a pretty big question that needs answered. The angel takes the time to answer the question, and we leave the text with the angel departing and Mary understanding and believing. That's how it's ordered together. So look with me in verses 26 through 28. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Let's take that apart for just a minute. We entered the text with this statement, it's the sixth month. Now, this is one of those times in God's word where there's a time stamp. And time stamps in God's word tend to keep us on track, so chronologically we can follow a greater storyline when we're looking at a subplot. And this is true here, too. This sixth month is referencing Elizabeth. That's back to Zacharias and Elizabeth who would bear John to become the Baptist. So it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and we have that timestamp. Besides the timestamp, it illustrates to us that the two stories are connected, that they aren't independent of each other, and, and they form part of a tapestry that gives us the entire picture of Christ's birth. Second thing we're reminded of, that there is a particular angel that is coming to Mary, Gabriel, who is the same angel that came to Zacharias. And if you remember, he described himself to Zacharias as the one who stands in the presence of God. This is no insignificant angel. This is God's angel that has come to speak to Mary. And there is a continuity here that he is the one that also spoke to Zacharias, which gives us an insight of the importance of this storyline. Now let me land for just a second on the geography. The text says it's a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, last weekend we had the big map up and we talked about the distance it is from Nazareth to Jerusalem or Bethlehem. And I illustrated that as the crow flies, it's 70 miles. But when I went to my Waze app and plugged in Nazareth and Bethlehem, it told me it's 85 miles following the road route. First of all, I was surprised that I could pull it up on my Waze app. Uh, the good news is, if, by the way, if you're thinking about it, if you travel between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., it's light traffic. So just be sure of that as, as you look at it. Well, one of the problems, I think, with the translation to our English is we misunderstand the word city. Certainly, this, this place, Nazareth, is not Jerusalem. It's, it's, in effect, more of a village than it is in a city. It's in a region called Galilee versus the region of Judea, and it's a decent distance from all the happenings of Jerusalem. Uh, it's, it's a very different kind of place. As a matter of fact, if you look in John's gospel, in John chapter 2, in verses 45 and 46, you can kind of get a glimpse of what people think of Nazareth. So at this point in John's gospel, Jesus is in his adult ministry. Philip is explaining to Nathaniel he has just met Jesus. And as he does, Nathaniel makes this statement, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, this is the idea here. This is, you know, if you want to put it kind of in our contextual world that we live in here in Middle Tennessee, it's the difference between living in Williamson County or Davidson County and Marshall County. It's living in the area where the government is at the centerpiece, where there's wealth and power and influence. 
versus a rural area where there isn't that kind of power and wealth and income, let alone influence. This is the difference between Nazareth and Jerusalem. Now, before we go any further in the text, I want to pause for just a second, and I want to talk a little bit about what marriage looked like in the first century, because that's going to help us to understand what's being communicated here in the text. And I'm just going to read a a quote from Daryl Bach, because I think he does a good job of summarizing it. The Jewish marriage process contained two steps. The initial step of engagement, if you want to use an old English word, betrothment, and it involved a formal witnessed agreement to marry and a financial exchange of a bride price. We don't do that anymore, I don't think. But maybe because parents of daughters tend to pay for weddings, there's a little bit of a residual kind of picture of that snapshot. Now, this is what makes it very different. At this point, the woman legally belongs to the groom and is referred to as his wife. But it's not until about a year later that the marriage ceremony takes place when the husband takes the wife home to live with him. Now, that may sound strange to us, but most likely in this culture, that that one that is going to be the husband has to prepare a home for his wife. He has to decide where they're going to live. So there's probably this time spent where he is doing just that, that when they finally do come together for that last piece where they are formally living with each other, he's worked on that. Last thing that Bach makes comment of that I think is different very much than our current society is a teenage girl at the age of 12 could get married and go through this process. So there's a little bit of a difference for us to understand contextually as we move on in this text. So the next thing we see is we're introduced to a virgin engaged to a man. A little later in the text, we learn her name, Mary, and I just like to make this observation about this as we move on. It's a teenager. It's a girl. She's looking forward at her life. Very different than what we found in the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. There's actually a cool contrast here between these two stories of old versus young. You know, Zacharias' wife, Elizabeth, was older. The text actually said that she was beyond childbearing years. She was barren. But here we are with Mary, who's young. Mary's looking forward to that blessing of children. And in this culture, that is great favor of God upon her. Uh, When we move on past Mary, we're introduced to Joseph. And the text just simply says he's a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. Now, we can't learn a lot about Joseph from this text, so we've got to move past the text for a minute. If you just look over at Luke chapter 2, verse 4, and in this story, we'll spend more time in it on Christmas Eve when we gather here at 6 o'clock. Here's what verse 4 says. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. And he did this in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. So the storyline here is there's the movement from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the home from where Joseph comes. It's referenced as the city of David that we talked about last week. It's actually the birthplace 
of David. There's movement here, and the text recognizes that Elizabeth is pregnant, but it tells us nothing about what Joseph, Joseph thought. It doesn't tell us, well, how did he get beyond this woman I have not been with is pregnant, and I'm going to now take her back to my hometown and actually finish that next step of the marriage process. To learn that, we have to take a look back into Matthew's gospel. And I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, I'm not going to go through this text in any great depth, but I want to give you just a a couple of points to consider in Joseph's storyline that's going to help us put these pieces together. So if you're there in Matthew 1, 18 through 25, look first in, math, in verse 24. So verse 24 says, Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took her as his wife. Now we're kind of at the end of this story, but I wanted to make this point. Most often in the biblical text, when an angel comes to someone, it's in the form of a vision. They might be asleep or they're contemplating something and, and, the, and the angel comes in that way. And that's the case for Joseph. This is very different than what has just happened with Zacharias and with Mary. They were awake. Gabriel came to them in person and they had a very in-person experience with an angel. In Joseph's case, it is a little bit different. Now verses 18 and 19 kind of lay out the background for us. It talks about the first step, that they are betrothed. It talks about Joseph's character, that he's a guy that wants to do the right thing. And it tells us that he actually wanted to do the right thing for this woman he had not been with that is pregnant. And it says he wanted to secretly put her away. Now, for those of you that take things literally, that does not mean end her life. Okay? That means that he wanted to protect her from the shame that might be associated with this. And then in verses 20 and 21, we meet once again the angel who speaks to Joseph, and he lays out the grand picture for Joseph. He talks about that this woman, Mary, he is to take as his wife, it says in verse 20, because she, what she has conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're the kind of people that write in your Bible like I do, Circle that word, conceived. It's the same word that John uses in his gospel record in chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, only begotten. It's the idea that the angel is saying to Joseph that this is not a conception that has anything to do with a man. This is a comfort statement to Joseph that God is involved in this in a very direct way. The angel goes on and talks about this son being named Jesus. And he says that the purpose for this son to come is to save the people from their sins. Now this text ends with a reflection from Matthew. Matthew comments here then that all of this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 or if you prefer chapter 9 verses 5 through 7. And he speaks of the coming Messiah. That's the picture that we have of Joseph. He, too, interacts with an angel. He, too, is given this grand picture of what is to happen as a result of this son that Mary would bear. Now, as we leave this text, I just want you to look at verse 25. 
Because Matthew gives us the answer to Joseph's perspective of all of this. And in verse 25, Matthew says, And Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Just simply make this observation about Joseph before we move back into our text. His experience caused him to believe. He cared for this teenage girl that would become his wife in a way that the culture would not have. This is God at work in Joseph's life, just as God is at work in Mary's life. This is the impossible in that culture's view becoming possible. One last thing about that Matthew text, as you turn back to Luke 1, if you were to go to the beginning of the text in verses 1 through 16, is this grand genealogy that starts with Abraham and ends with Joseph over 42 generations and how there is not a break in that lineage. And that Joseph's genealogy can be counted back to David, which can be counted back to Abraham. This is a picture, albeit a silhouette for a moment, of the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. Well, let's move on to what the angel has to say to Mary. In verse 30, coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, this term, favored one, in some texts is translated for you as highly favored. I think there are some texts that even say richly blessed. Now, what I would ask you to consider in its most simple form is it's kind of a complicated Greek word, but at the core of it, at the root of it, is a word we know very well, the word grace that's translated from the Greek word charis. I would submit to you that we could translate this text with something as simple as, Mary, you are the graced one, for God is with you. You are the graced one, for God is with you. And I think there's a way for us to further describe this as we look through the storyline. So let's go to Mary's reaction. In verse 21, here's what's recorded for us. She was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. Now, on first reading of this, using our 21st century minds and our English language, I don't know if it's like you, but for me, when I read the word troubled, that's not a good thing. So the question for us is, what's really going on with Mary's reaction? It almost sounds like it's not certain. Well, what I want to suggest to you that those two words, greatly troubled, could also be translated as greatly perplexed. And that helps me as I think about this description for this reason. When I think about being per perplexed, it's not necessarily that I don't believe. It's, it's I don't understand. I'm curious about it. There's, there's some concern I have because I don't understand. And I think we can, we can be more certain of that when we read the rest of this very verse. And she kept pondering. Well, that idea of pondering is the idea of mulling it over, thinking about it. And here's something that struck me as I was working through this text. I mean, if you remember when we worked through the shepherd story, and the shepherds came to Mary and Joseph, and they reflected on the fact that her son was Messiah. You remember that in that storyline last week? Well, even after the birth of Jesus and their visit to her, 
The text there said she was pondering everything that has just happened. Specifically in verse 19 of chapter 2, if you're there in your Bible, you can see it. The text says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, for me, I think it's safe to conclude that from a personality type, Mary's a reflective person. She needs to think about stuff. Now, I can speak to this from the first person. I happen to have been married for 43 years to a reflective woman. Patty, often I will ask a question, hoping for the yes or no answer so I can move on, and I get the reply, I need to think about it. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. That's my normal life. Now, let me tell you why that is so good. I'm not that way. I can make a decision, move on. If it doesn't work out, make another decision. But Patty will think about things. And when she comes back to me after she's thought about it, there tends to be more wisdom in that decision than the one I would have made. And there's a blessing to that. I would say that what we're seeing here is a young teenager, teenage girl that is willing to think about this because she's being confronted by a, a visible angel in front of her eyes that is speaking to her. And this stops her and causes her to think. Now, the answer here is going to unfold pretty quickly. So if we move on and look in verse 30, let's see what the angel actually says to her. What does Gabriel say? First, he says, don't be afraid, Mary. And then he says, you have found favor with God. Well, before Gabriel gives Mary the details, he offers these calming words, don't be afraid. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week. This is that angelic pattern. An angel appears. Fear is common for the person when they are confronted by an angel. Typically, they fall down on their knees and bow to the ground, and their reaction is fear. The angel then offers these calming words, don't be afraid. Everywhere you look in the biblical text, you will find this pattern, and only then does the angel proclaim what God sent them to tell that person. This is not out of the ordinary. This is what happens to Mary as it does to every other person that is confronted by an angel. Now, Gabriel goes on beyond not saying not to be afraid by suggesting that she's got a special gift from God. It's called the favor of God. You see that in the text? For the purpose of us kind of being on the same page with that, let me just stop for a second <clears throat> and define it. God's favor is God's gracious choice of someone through whom God does something special. Let me say that one more time. God's favor is God's gracious choice of someone through whom God does something special. Tons of examples through the entire Bible. Noah, Moses, Abraham, Joseph. As a matter of fact, Luke speaks to the Joseph example in his book of Acts. And if you look over at Acts chapter 7, in verses 9 and 10 of Acts, he recounts the story of Joseph. And I want to just point at it for just a second because I think there's something for us to take away here. In verse 9, and the, patriots, and the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. We all know the story. I would describe that as 
That's suffering. He's with his family. He's ripped from his family. He's sent to a foreign country. And the intent of his brothers wasn't necessarily good. That's suffering. Luke goes on in the text and says, and yet God was with him. And yet God was with him. And rescued him from all of his afflictions. And granted him favor. And granted him favor. And granted him wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all of his household. That's grace. Do you agree? That's grace. Two ideas. Suffering. Grace. It's an interesting pattern that often suffering is followed by grace. You might think of it in your own life. Suffering followed by grace. A deep hole that you're in that's followed by a certainty that your faith is real. Now, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are afflicted but not crushed. We are perplexed but not despairing. We are persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down but not destroyed. That's suffering, isn't it? But you know how he ends that passage in 2 Corinthians 4? He says this, how is it that we're not destroyed? How is it that we're not overcome by this? Simple answer. We aren't because we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with him. That's grace. Suffering and grace. Now, I I don't know what your family traditions are. I'm old enough and getting older every day to speak of things that may not be traditions. But as, you know, my family was growing up, at Thanksgiving, we'd sit around the table after the meal ended, but before dessert was served so we could keep everybody in one place. And, you know, we'd ask the question, what are you thankful for this year? And, you know, the little kids would squirm. And the guys in the room would try to leave to go watch football. But we'd always get around the table to answer that question. When I think about this favor of God, I want to give you a new question. I want to ask you about a new tradition. I want to suggest that on Christmas Day, when you're around the table having dinner, but before dessert is served, maybe this might be a question you could ask to answer. What favor has God shown upon us this year? What favor has God shown upon us this year? It's just a good way to reflect upon what Mary is dealing with here right now, God's favor. Well, let's move on. In verses 31 through 33, the angel moves now to some conversation with Mary about the future. We would call it prophecy. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb, bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Let's just take a look at some of those pieces. In verse 31, where he talks about Mary conceiving in her womb and having a son and naming him Jesus. Let's just pretend for a minute that the angel didn't have anything else to say but that. And he came to Mary with that. Here's this teenage girl looking at her future 
with her betrothed husband. I would imagine hoping that she would be able to bear children to him. And that would be a sign of God's favor. And a great sign of God's favor would be a son in this culture. So for Mary, I would suggest that this is a blessing of fruitfulness for her. And it is almost a word-for-word translation from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where Isaiah says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. It's a blessing of fruitfulness. This is God's favor. Well, let's look on at the next thing that Gabriel says to her. Now this proclamation turns to what we might describe as the impossible He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There are two things here I think that we need to come to grips with. What is this angel saying to Mary? She is going to bear a son, and it's going to be God's son. I can't even imagine the reaction at that moment, what Mary must have experienced. This is the Son of God. What would that mean to a Jewish person in the first century, it would mean a lot. And the confirmation of that lot is in the second thing that the angel Gabriel says. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This son of Mary's will be the son of God and the king of Israel. Now, for anyone here in the first century, this is very clear. This is the Messiah come. This is God's covenant fulfilled. I was reminded as I was studying of how these things transition through God's word. And if you remember at the time when when David was about to die, God informed him that he would not be the one to build the temple, that his son Solomon would build the temple, right? And that that would be Solomon's purpose. But in in that same prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's also a warning that David learns of about his son Solomon, that Solomon's going to mess up, that he's going to make some mistakes. And what does God say to overcome what might have been a concern for David? He says in verse 14, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is all part of this story. It's about the impossible being made possible. For Mary, it was a blessing of fruitfulness, God's favor. It was the impossible that she would be the mother of the Son of God. Well, what's the third thing he says? He says that this son of hers will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, Gabriel takes Mary back to Jacob. This is an Old Testament history lesson that this teenage girl Mary is going through. He's not going to stop at David. He's going to take him back to Jacob which would take us back to Abraham. Because it's through Abraham, the covenant is made by God that passes on. Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who would later be called Israel. This is the story we have. I would, I would just suggest it's got three parts to it. It's a blessing of fruitfulness for Mary. It's God's favor. It's the impossible work made possible that, in fact, Mary would be the mother of the Son of God. And it is the fulfillment of God's plan in the covenant that he made with Abraham that Messiah would come. Well, that leads to a question that Mary asks. Verse 34. 
Here's her question. How can this be since I'm a virgin? How can this be? Now, I want to ask you for a minute to remember when we looked at the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias reacted to Gabriel too, didn't he? Now, his reaction, I would suggest, was a little different. His question of Gabriel, or I might say his sarcasm towards Gabriel, was was this. How shall I know this for certain? When Gabriel told him that his wife was going to have a baby, I mean, when, when Gabriel tells Zacharias this, Zacharias goes, whoa, whoa, time out. This is not possible. How am I going to know this? This is not what's happening here with Mary. And, and I want to make sure that I'm clear on this. Her question to Gabriel is more like this. Okay. I've not been with a man, so how does this work? It, it, it's a question of wonder. It's not a question of challenging the angel. It's a question of, whoa, this sounds impossible. How could this possibly happen to me? And I think it's followed by this kind of unspoken thing. Here I go building bridges that I shouldn't, but I'm going anyway. Can I get some details here? Isn't that just a woman thing? Okay, now I probably went over the line there. I'm going to move on. Verses 35 through 37 is the answer that Gabriel gives her to her question. And this is where the details all come together. Look with me at verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Three things I want to note here in this verse. First, even in my study this week, one of the things that I was you know, kind of surprised by and stood out for me was how often Luke in this Christmas record in chapter 1 and chapter 2 references the Holy Spirit. By my account, six times he talks about the influence of the Holy Spirit in this storyline. Now, we know that later on, the Holy Spirit has a much different role. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one that the disciples wait for at Jesus' charge. The Holy Spirit is the one that indwells those who believe uh, and acts as a helper in our lives. And he is alive in us, those of us that claim Christ. So there's a very big theological part to this. So it is the involvement of the Holy Spirit. Here the, the terms are interesting. He will come upon you. It is that term of indwelling. It is that idea of this personal approach of the Spirit in, to Mary. Well, the second thing he says is that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, the Most High is easily recognizable. This is God. He is the Most High. What I just want to observe is this word, overshadow. It's not a word that we typically use in our language, and I think it's worth noting because it helps to explain what might be happening here. Think of it like the cloud that covered the tabernacle. Now think about it as God's presence enveloped the tabernacle. Now this same Greek word also that's translated here as overshadow is the same word that all three of the gospel writers use to describe Jesus' glory when Peter, James, and John go with him to the mount 
And Jesus stands with Moses and Elijah. It's the same word. It's the present glory of God. In some way here, we are told that the very glory of God will overtake Mary. I'd be so bold as to say his very essence will come upon Mary. Third thing here is she's told that because of those two things, for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. That's what John says in chapter 1 of his gospel record in verse 14 when he says the only begotten of the Father. It is the same word. There is only one. There is no one like him. A literal translation of that word is not germinated from another. This is not something that happens with the agency of men. Now, what I want to suggest to you is we talk about the Trinity is God being a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and yet we don't speak of that word in the New Testament text, but let me suggest to you, where better to see God in three persons than in the birth of Jesus Christ as a human? And I would suggest to you that that is what is exposed to us in this little short text. It is God the Father, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, and God the Son, Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on. There's another thing that the angel says to Mary, and he says that there's an, another example I can share with you, and that is the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. This is something that Mary will be confronted with when she meets her cousin Elizabeth in the days ahead, but for now it's a prophecy. It is that even Elizabeth, who is described as old, and unable to have children, and barren that she would have a child. Let me contrast these two things for us for just a moment. When I think of Elizabeth and Zacharias and the birth of John, I would suggest that God is God over everything that is physical, every detail of his creation of which we are but a part of. He is the author of what is possible physiologically, Elizabeth was not able to have a child. That's not a barrier for a sovereign, omnipotent God. The Genesis record says that he creates things by his word. And it is apparent that even by the angel's word to Zacharias, which came directly from the presence of God, that this would be true. Well, the second thing as it relates to the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit upon Mary and the overshadowing of God upon her is that God is the God over everything spiritual. He is that triune Godhead. And this is a place where the spiritual meets the physical. He would himself come to earth as a human being. Now that's not the finish for the angel for when he contrasts these two pictures, he says this, for nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. You see, God is the author of all things. The idea of impossibility is not part of God's character attributes. It is all possible. Well, we finish this story with a response from Mary once again, and it's a very brief and quick kind of a scene that happens. Verse 38 records that Mary said, Behold the bondservant of the Lord, as she identifies herself now. She says this, Be it done to me according to your word. And the angel 
departed from her. It's such a brief scene. It's as if Gabriel is waiting for the response from Mary that she understands, and in my simple contemporary vernacular, I'm good to go. I, I got it now. And then in a, in a moment, the angel departs. Well, this, this is one thing that strikes me as I look at the brevity of how this storyline finishes. I would, I would observe that at no time in this text or in the related text that we've read, is there a time that suggests Mary was concerned with the shame that might be coming her way for this pregnancy that she had? Which to me struck me as kind of odd, given that this would be the most shameful thing ever to happen to a woman. And she'd carry it with her the rest of her life, and it would impact the rest of her life. And it begged for me this question, did Mary take the words of Gabriel in faith? Was she receiving this now, believing? I say yes. I think these words, as brief as they are, are words of trust and faith. I mean, she says, be it done to me according to your word. You know, something I think for us to think about when it comes to our own circumstances in life. Here's this teenage girl confronted with, with the, which seems impossible and unbelieving. And if that's not enough, it's personal because it could mark her for the rest of her life. Those circumstances don't get in the way of her believing and trusting God, even when it seems impossible. That's part of the story here that we get to take away. Well, let's wrap it all up here. I started by saying that this story is broken into these six little scenes. So let me see if I can't make sense of it, because these scenes illustrate to us the reconciliation of man to God. So when the angel visits Mary, brings his greeting to her, it's the idea that she felt the presence of God with her. We would put it in our vernacular, God is with you. Her reaction shouldn't surprise any of us, and it is a reaction that I think is a good reaction. Who am I that this is coming to me, that this could be about me? What does the angel say to her? Completely ignores her reaction and offers this. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah that's come which only causes Mary, this teenage girl, to ask another question. And that question is very much like this, how can I be so blessed? What's the angel have to say to that? Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. And how does Mary's story end there in verse 38? I would suggest it's simply this accolade. I believe. I trust you. This will be because you have said. Well, I'll think on this simple list. It isn't our story directly. It's Mary's story. But for those of us who claim faith in Christ, albeit we are not Mary, we certainly relate to this story. God's way is certain and perfect and complete and never changing, and his love is for us all. This is the story of Christmas. God is with you.
He has given us his son, Jesus Christ. And how is it that this could happen? Because nothing is impossible for God. The question we're all asked at Christmas is, do we believe? And as we do believe, will we follow him? Angel simply said to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. You see, that proclamation is for us too. God's asking us to believe that. I would just simply ask you as you leave this morning to think on this. God stepped from eternity into your life. His favor and grace has been applied to you so that you can believe. And what do you get from his favor? You get to spend eternity with him. And how do we get this story? God took a teenage girl 2,000 years ago, an everyday person doing everyday things, and used her that we might benefit from that. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Merry Christmas.